0: We'll go ahead and get started tonight. Thanks for coming. My name is Jamie Saint. And tonight we're going to be really just talking about stories from the field. Uh, I wanted to start by giving you an update on my dad. A lot of people have said, how's your dad doing? My dad is doing well. He is uh, in the recovery phase. Right at the very end of the session tonight, I'll show you a short video. um, that shows him, uh, in about six minutes, it shows him from injury to rehab to arriving at home. Um, So he is doing well. His spirits are good. Right from the get-go, certainly this was a life-changing accident, but right from the get-go, he has said, you know, I've been telling people for a decade or more to let God write your story. And he said, and that's really what what I want to have happen. I want God to write my story however He wants to write it, not the way I want it to be written. So, even before his surgery, he told people, don't pray for recovery. Just pray that, that God will write this story His way. You know, for the last about ten years, my dad has been here at GMHC and he's, you know he's been talking about and he's been trying to challenge people with the idea of of training and equipping rather than going and doing in missions. Training and equipping indigenous Christ followers with the tools so that they can be ambassadors for Christ to their own world and that's what we're going to talk about tonight you know the Bible says in second Corinthians 5:20 that we are ambassadors for Christ. well what does that mean? what does that look like? you know ambassadors do the things that the person that sent them called them to do and what did Christ give us as a commission Matthew 28 go into all the world. Our call is to go. We have to go. But we have to do God's will, God's way. We have to go and teach people to observe all the things that we've been taught to do. But you know, this idea of training and equipping, it wasn't our idea. This idea started back a number of years ago. In fact, let me take you back to 1955. My grandfather, Nate Saint, was a jungle missionary pilot. He flew in support of other missionaries out in the Amazon rainforest of Ecuador, South America. And in 1956, as many people know, after uh, about 13 weeks of the bucket drop, showing this very violent society called then the Alcas, now known as the Waodani, communicating to them that they were friendly. They decided to make friendly contact. And they did on January 6, 1956. It was a Friday For the first time in recorded history, going back at least ten generations, there was a friendly contact with this tribe, the Waodani, and the outside world. You know, at that point in time, my grandfather, he knew the story that God was writing. He knew what what the next chapter was going to hold. That God would allow them to reach these people and share the Gospel, and these people would come to know the Lord. But two days later these Indians came back and speared by my grandfather, Nate, and his four friends, Jim Elliott, Roger Udarian, Pete Fleming, and Ed McCauley. Now, that seemed to be the end of the story, but two years later, my great-aunt Rachel got to go in and live with these the very same people. And two years after that, my dad got to go in for the first time. Now, many people have have wondered what, the, you know, what made these people so violent. And it, out in... The Amazon rainforest in this tribe, the Waodani, they had no written laws of any kind. It was an egalitarian society. But while there were no written laws, there became four unwritten rules that everybody lived by. And to fully understand the stories that I'm going to tell you tonight and and where this idea of training and equipping came from, you really have to understand these four unwritten rules. Rule number one, if somebody does something to offend you, you ignore it. Rule number two, if somebody does something that offends you and you can't ignore it, you kill them. Rule number three, if somebody has killed somebody in your family, it's not only your right, but it's your obligation to go kill somebody in their family. And finally, rule number four, whether to avenge a death or because of an offense that has happened to you, you're going to go kill somebody, take your whole family group with you, and wipe out the entire other family group. That way there's nobody left come kill you or your family. It literally was a society of death. 60% homicide rate inside the tribe. Anthropologists who have since studied this tribe have called them the most violent society to have ever existed on this planet. And I tell you that because as my dad first got to go in and live with the wow, they were very standoffish because they didn't know what to make of him. And then Minkai, a short time after he was living there, Minkai... The man who speared my grandfather went to my Aunt Rachel and said, Nemo, Babe, he doesn't know how to live out here. Now they were hunter-gatherers. So the men's role was to go get it, kill it, and drag it home. The women then had the, they had the difficult role because they had to not only tend the gardens, but they also had to, had to dress and cook and, and get ready the food for eating. So when Minkai came, he could not believe that my dad at 9 or 10 years old, that he did not know how to live. He didn't know how to use a blowgun. He didn't know how to use a spear. He didn't know how to track or to hunt. And just dumbfounded, he said, how can how can he already be this old and not know how to live? And my Aunt Rachel, Nemo, she turned back to Minkai, she said, Minkai, you having speared his father, who do you say should teach him how to live? Because out in the Amazon, it was the father's role to teach the, the sons how to do what he did. We call that discipleship, by the way. And so, Minkai, having been challenged by my Aunt Rachel, he had to go away and think about that, because if he was to teach my dad how to hunt and how to use a spear and blowgun and, and track, he was ultimately giving him the tools and the training necessary to come back and, and avenge his dad's death by killing Minkai and his people. That afternoon, Minkai went back and he said, Nemo, is true. Having speared his father, I myself will teach him how to live. But you know, it really didn't dawn on my dad what Minkai was saying until a little later. Minkai's son said, Baba, let's go out and hunt. Let's go kill some monkeys. By the way, if you don't know, monkey meat is very good. I, I've never had it with curry, Caleb, but um, monkey meat is very, very good. If you wonder what it tastes like, it tastes a lot like chicken. Much better. You know, as they went out, my dad said, "Why well, I don't have anything to hunt with. And they said, oh, just grab Minkai's blowgun and his darts and, and Come. Well, my dad had been told, look, you don't touch a warrior's blowgun or his spears unless you're his son. It is a killing offense. Well, after much peer pressure was laid into him, he took Minkai's blowgun and spears, or Minkai's blowgun and darts, and they went hunting. Now, Minkai wasn't in the hut at the time. So, no harm, no foul, right? They went out hunting, they got the monkeys, they came back. But when he came back to put the blowgun and the darts back, Minkai and Ompora, his wife, were in the hut. And there's no walls once you get inside, so it's not like you can be sneaky about it. After getting up the courage, he went ahead and he put the blowgun back and the spear or the, the darts back, and you know Minkai saw him but said nothing. And it was at that moment that my dad realized that he had been adopted by Minkai. Minkai looked at him as no less than his own son. Fast forward to 1994, my great-aunt Rachel died. My dad went down for the funeral, and at the funeral, after it had taken place, Dawa, his tribal grandmother, said, Baba, now that Nemo is gone, we say that you come, you and your family, being part of our family, you come and you live with us. And I said, well, it's, it's impossible. I can't do that. You know, he, had, he was a businessman in Florida, had a lot of things going on. He, he said, you know what, I could hire somebody to come and I'll just visit you often. And they said, no, we say that you come. And then they upped the ante just a little bit. They said, Nemo said that you would come. (laughs) Well, now what are you going to do, right? So he used the excuse that many of us use. Because, I mean, ultimately, if you're in church and somebody says, hey, we really need you to serve in whatever ministry, and you really don't want to do it, what do you say? I'll pray about it, right? (laughs) Because how does somebody know what God tells you? And somebody said, he said, okay, people. Because Wadani means true people. He said, people. Talking to Wangungi, the Creator God, if he sees it well, then then surely we'll come. Well, Dawah turned back to the people. She had learned something from my Aunt Rachel. She said, people, I've already talked to Wangungi. Now what are you going to do? So Dawah tells you to come, Aunt Rachel said that you would come, and now God sees it well that you come. And so he used the next best excuse. He said, Okay, people, Wangongi, the Creator God, and Ongin Kamo. Now we have the Annie a lot because he knew that they couldn't talk to my mom. My mom wasn't there, and even if she was there, they don't speak the same language, but there's no way to communicate from the jungles up to, the, up to Florida, and so he knew he had them. But Dawa turned back to the people, she said, People, Ongin Kamo being a God follower, if God sees it well, how can she see it any differently? And so in 1995, two weeks after I graduated from high school, we moved down to the Amazon. And when we arrived, we said, okay, people, what do you want us to teach you how to do? I mean, what do you want us to do for you? And they said, no, you don't, you don't get it. So they said, foreigners always come and do for us the things that we should be doing ourselves because don't God's carvings, these are, by the way, God's carvings, doesn't God's carving say that all God followers need to be reaching their own people? Well, yeah, that's true. They said, okay. They said, here's what we want you to do. We want you to teach us how to do the bagabia. They wanted to learn how to, how to do the tooth thing. They said, well, wh- why would you want to do the, learn how to do the tooth thing? They said, because when foreign doctors come, they come and they, they pull a lot of people's teeth. And the people who had hurting teeth, they see them very well. But all the foreigners can do is pull their teeth. See, if we knew how to pull their teeth and fix the pain in their mouth, we could also tell them how God could fix their hearts. Well, that makes a lot of sense, but none of us were dentists. So, that wasn't going to work very well. We said, maybe there's something else you'd like us to teach you. And they said, yes. How about the oinkabia, the, the eye thing? Because when foreigners, when they come and they help the people see better, then the people like that a lot, and, but that's all they can do. All they can do is help people see better, but if we could help people see better, then we can also tell them how God can clean their hearts, and they can live forever and in peace. Well, none of us were optometrists or opticians, so that wasn't going to work very well, and we said, well, maybe there's something else that we could do. And they said, yes, the medicine thing, Because when foreigners come and they heal people's skin, the people see them very well, but all they can do is heal people's skin. But if we could do that, then we could not only heal their skin, but we could tell them God could heal their hearts. You see a pattern that's going here, right? Unfortunately, at that time, none of us were doctors. My older brother is now a general surgeon, but we knew that that wasn't going to work very well. How can we teach them things that we didn't know? He said, "Well, that's not going to work. Maybe there's something else." And they said, "Yes, you can teach us teach us the ebolbiat, the flying thing." And they knew they had us here because when my grandfather came, they said, "When he came, he flew fast from place to place." And then every time you all come, you fly fast from place to place. And you have to understand, there's no more demoralizing sound when you're on the jungle trail than an airplane. Because one hour on the trail is a minute in the air. Which is not bad if it's just an hour. Which, by the way, all of you who think you are in in fairly good shape, when you get down to the Amazon, you realize how out of shape you really are. And an hour on the trail is just about a death sentence for most of us. It is grueling up and down ridges. But listen to what the people were saying. They said, okay, if you teach us how to fly, then we don't have to rely on the outsiders and if we know how to do the medicine thing and the tooth thing, if our own people are hurting, we can go and we can fly to where they are and we can take care of them. But not just take care of the physical hurt, take care of the spiritual hurt as well. But what they were wanting to do is go from the Stone Age to the Space Age in a single jump and we knew that was going to be very dangerous. So after thinking about it, we said a little bit, you know, that probably won't work so well. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about that tooth thing? That's probably a little bit more practical for us. There was a, while we were living down there, there was a North American dentist who had come. And he wanted to go out and work on the people who had killed the missionaries back in, in 1956. Because then he'd have a story to tell. And, you know, dentists, when they go, they work very, very hard. But the line is always... And talk to the dentist. The line is always longer when they leave than when they get there. And this dentist wanted to go out and my dad said, I'll take you out on one condition. If you teach the people what you know. Well, this dentist had not only had the 20 years of schooling to get through all the way through dental school, but then he also had 20 years of dental experience. How in the world could he teach in just a couple days? How could he teach the Waudani how to do what he had spent 40 years learning? But it didn't matter what the conditions. He was ready to sign on the dotted line. He said, absolutely. And what he took that to mean is he would let them hold his instruments. So after working very hard for one morning, uh, he had given a, a lady a shot of anesthetic. And he went up to my parents' house to get a glass of lemonade. You know, it takes, we all have been in a dentist chair, I'm sure. And, you know, it takes a little while for your n- mouth to get numb. Well, he came back and the tooth was already drilled. Well, my dad was coming back from a flight and he said, Steve, come over here. He said, I thought you told me nobody out here knew how to do dentistry. He said, they don't. He said, Now, Steve, I've been a dentist for more than 20 years. I know when somebody has had dental training. He said, Whoever drilled out this tooth has had dental training. My dad looked back to him and he said, I've known these people all my life. Not a single person out here has had any dental experience. And so they turned to the people and they said, Okay, who did this? Well, Nobody admitted to it because they didn't know if this was a good thing or a bad thing. And finally, Tamenta he raised his hand and he said, he said, I did it. He said, I figured she already had the thorn, so she wouldn't feel anything. What damage could I do? And you know what? This dentist got the idea. He said, you know what? And just by watching him for a morning, Tamenta had seen what he had done and did a skillful job of getting all the carries out out of that tooth. And so he agreed to teach my dad how to do dentistry. So my dad came up to the States and took two semesters of dental school. One on Friday and one on Saturday. And then he went back to teach them everything he knew. A short time later, um, we did say, hey, we'll we'll teach you even how to do the flying thing. And we took down an ultralight because even down in Ecuador, you don't have to have any education, no pilot's license, no license of any kind to fly an ultralight. And so we took down an ultralight and as we were putting that together on the edge of the jungles in Shell where my grandparents were based, another tribe of Indians came by and they saw the wow putting together an airplane. Now you have to understand something. In Ecuador, the Indian class is the lowest class in society. And within the Indian class, the wow are the lowest class. And so the wow are the lowest of the low. Because, of course, they were the killers from years back. These Indians saw the wow putting together an airplane, and they said, if they can do it, we can do it too. And so they came up to us and they said, after you're done teaching them, will you teach us too? And I said, no. See, we're family with them. We're coming to teach them. And they left somewhat dejected in the wow after they left, they said, no, don't you get it? You teaching us, together we'll teach everybody. That is where this organization that we work with, ITEC, that's where the idea was. It wasn't my dad's idea, it was the Wow's idea. Because they don't think like we do. We as North Americans, or many of us are North Americans, we tend to think that we have to do it. If we don't do it, it won't get done. But the wow said, look, you teaching us, together we'll teach everybody. It's a multiplication scheme that we see laid out in the Bible. It's a relay race, not a, not a, a marathon that one person is supposed to run by themselves. You know, Minkai, we've had, uh, and we could go into story after story about Minkai, but on June 11th, My uh, A day before my dad's accident, Minkai that night had a dream. He had a dream that that my dad had a serious accident. And so he came out of the jungles to Shell where we have a prototype training center called iTech Ecuador. He came out to speak to Gallo to see if it was true, if my dad really had had a serious accident. Some of you have seen the next chapter videos, have seen the Skyping between my dad and Minkai. But then, Minkai, after hearing, yes, it was true, that my dad had had a serious accident, he went back and talked to the people and said, I'm going to go see for myself if this really is true. And so he came up uh, just about six weeks ago now. At the end of September, he came up to, to our house in, in Ocala. Actually, that's in Dunnellan. And, you know, he wanted to check on my dad, but ultimately he came and he said, I came to check and to see if you were able to take care of Ongi because if not, I'm here to take her back to the jungles where we can take care of her. And you know what? My, you know, it was a very strange thing, but my mom said, no, 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 I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> but you know what? One of the principles that I want to I communicate tonight is, is we have to think Family. Minkai came up to check on his adopted son, my dad. But mainly to check to see if my dad was able to take care of my mom. And if not, he was going to, as our family, he was going to take her back so that he could take care of her. We have to think, family. One of my favorite stories, in August of 2005, a short time after we had returned from Hyderabad, India, training a group of pastors there with... With Caleb, training them how to do the the dentistry, what we call iDent. And they had asked for Minkai to come because they said, Look, you know, Minkai being in the jungles, he doesn't have any education. These pastors had education, but just no medical experience. And they said, If Minkai, if he can come and show us. And we tried to explain to Minkai that the world is round and that we were going to the bottom side and. He thought that was pretty crazy because we would just fall off and nobody could possibly live there. But after, when we were taking Minkai back to the jungles, it just dawned on me. Here I was, we were in, a, in an airplane that had six seats. My dad, who loves to fly, he was sitting up front with the pilot. I was sitting in the middle, and then because of the whole um, CG, Minkai was sitting right behind me. Now, this was August of 2005. And it just dawned on me that 50 years earlier, my grandfather was flying over these very same jungles looking for the people that I now call family. His son was sitting in front of me. His killer was sitting behind me. And then it dawned on me one more thing. I was named... My full name is Jamie Nate... Minkai, saint. When we talk about a story, you can't make that kind of thing up. And if you tried to, people would think it was ludicrous. But when God writes a story, man, He he writes some cool twists and turns in there. There are some painful chapters, but there's a lot of fun as well. So we need to think family. You know, Minkai and Tamenta, One time when they came out of the jungles with us, my dad was actually bringing them up to the United States. And my grandfather, with some inheritance that he had gotten prior to his death, he had purchased a a large piece of property. And he had donated it to a couple different mission agencies. And one of these mission agencies had built a guest house. And so my dad and Minkaya and Tementa, they stayed at the guest house. And then my dad was coming back up to Quito and then um, I think this must have been on the return trip because Minkay and Tementa needed to stay one extra night before going back into the jungles. And the people running the guest house, North American missionaries, came up to my dad and I said, they said, Steve, um, if you're not here, if you're not going to be staying here, they can't stay here anyway either. But I said, excuse me? He said, yeah, we don't allow any, any foreign people to stay in this guest house unless they're accompanied by a North American. And here, the very men that my grandfather had given his life for and my great-aunt had spent her life for were not allowed to stay in the guest house that was built with North American dollars built on land that my grandfather had donated. So oftentimes, we don't think like family. We go over to another place, wanting to do things our way. And you know what? They have a different way of doing things. We need to think, family. But we also need to be culturally sensitive when we go. We need to know. We need to not be in the driver's seat. We need to allow them to be in the driver's seat. Except for Caleb. He drives very crazy in India. I could tell a story, but I won't, Caleb. Okay, you want me to tell? Okay. Brief story about Caleb. Here we are. I was sick one day. And so normally I was riding in the bus with the pastors. But this day I was riding with Caleb in his his vehicle. And in India, as soon as your front bumper is in front of the bumper of the person next to you, you have the right of way. You just honk and move over. And if they hit you, or rather you hit them, it's really them hitting you because you own that piece of road because your bumper is in front of theirs. And we had two blocks to go. We were driving, and anything in India is 20 minutes away. Four hours later, you show up, but it's only 20 minutes. I'm telling on you a little bit, Caleb. But we were getting back one day after doing clinics out in the field. And literally, we had two blocks to go. But there was somebody who was probably going about five miles an hour, slower than what Caleb wanted to do. And so he pulled out, and as soon as his bumper was in front of this guy... Now in India you drive on the opposite side, of so I'm in the passenger seat, and I mean I am just this far in front of the people next to me, and he starts he just honks and starts pulling over, and sure enough they slowed down so we can, I mean it saved about two seconds, but <laughs> but when in India do as the Indians, and so hey it was it was a lot of fun I've had a lot of fun telling that story several times but we need to be culturally sensitive i led a team recently um, in fact at the end of april down to bolivia and we were doing several different things we were teaching how to do the ic we were teaching how to do the ident and and as well as the imed a note on imed I'll, i'll tell you that in a minute so we're down doing ic clinics and ident clinics and imed clinics two days in the classroom teaching the indigenous god followers the Christ followers there in Bolivia, how to do these things. I was told that we were going to have 10 students. We had 60 students. So, you know, you just roll with the punches, adapt to it and run. So we were doing our first day of clinics after the two days in the, in the classroom. And Raul, the president of the Association of 53 Churches there in, in La Paz area and, and El Alto and out in the Altiplano, He came to Dean, who had previously been a missionary there in Bolivia, and he said, Dean, he said, oh, it's amazing. He said, I have glasses, and for the first time in four years, I can see my Bible without it being blurry. And they said, do you think when the gringos come back, do you think that they can test all the pastor's eyes? And Dean looked at him and he said, he said, Raul, who checked your eyes? And Raul Raul said, well, Sonia did he said and, and who fit you for that pair of glasses he said well Myra did and then it was like the light bulb went off or I said wait we don't have to wait until the gringos come back because our own people can do this and they had already done it on the first day of clinics they were running the show but that's just one one short story we have done many training trips to Ecuador. In fact, we have our prototype training center there. And Many years ago now, uh, a trip that we went on, iTech and Empower, there was one guy named Rolando who was there doing dentistry. He wanted to learn how to be a dental technician. And you know, he took to it. By the way, Raul, I think he's on the screen there. His main profession is a jackhammer operator. Now, if you've ever sat in a dentist's Chair, You might think that he was well-trained for being a dental technician. But very, very different, right? But Rolando has proceeded, had been trained many times, and now on our last two trips down to Ecuador to train additional God followers, Rolando, like you see him here, he has been training right alongside our North American dentist. There's a group of North American medical people who were going down to an area of the jungles, and they called me to see if we had any dentist who would be willing to go in and, and do dentistry out in the jungles. I said, well, I don't have any dentists, but I do have Rolando. And you know what? Rolando was invited. He was the only non-North American, only non-medical, professionally trained person, but he was the only person doing dentistry. Rolando is going with us in January to Bolivia. Rolando is going to be training right alongside our North American dentist, training now Bolivian Christ followers how to do extractions and restorations. Rolando, the jackhammer operator. You can't make that stuff up. We need to be culturally sensitive. But we also need to empower and equip. We need to empower... The indigenous Godfathers. If every dentist in this country went and and quit their practices and went around the world to do medical missions, to do dental dental missions, do you know that less than five percent of the need would be met? Less than five percent. But we have all these Christ followers around the world. Talk to Caleb afterwards. I'm sure if if you were here last year, uh, you heard King King's Pride Hammond. In the plenary session, talk about that they had seen now over forty thousand patients. Do You know what they were trained with? Kings Pride. They have two and a half million people in their region with one government dentist. One, and when the government dentist runs into problems, do you know who? Excuse me. Do you know who he sends his patients to? Kings Pride and the pastors. Why? because they have more experience than the government dentist does. The dilemma that we face tonight, it's, it's a massive, a massive thing. We have to overcome many things in order to realize that the indigenous Godfathers are able, they are capable of learning in a short amount of time, skills that will impact their world for the sake of the Gospel. Because they don't have a cultural barrier. They don't have a language barrier. They can go and they can speak the language. They can talk to the heart of the people. And you know what? Like the wow say, it's so great. The, the, I dent is so good because when they get in the chair and you're working on their teeth, you can talk to them and they can't talk back. All they can do is listen. It's wonderful. While we were also in Bolivia, we did a uh, an imed clinic, and these clinics were going on simultaneously out in the altiplano and I asked the pastor at the end of the day, I said, "Do you think that these clinics were worthwhile and he started going off and I speak a little spanish and but i don 't speak any ayamada yeah, you probably don't either but that's that's I think he was doing some Spanish and some Aymara and uh, And he just went off. And so Dean was translating for me. And do you know what this pastor said? He said, this is so good. He said, just a short time ago, the government officials came. They had given us this property for the church. And the church was, I mean, it was tiny. It was like a 10 by 12 with a little compound. And he said, they had given us this, but they came just a short time ago to take it back. Because they said, you're not doing anything to help the people. And the pastor said, wait. We are having a clinic on this day. Come and see. And what you see on this, you see the lines of people who are coming to be touched. The government officials stopped by that day. And they said to the pastor, they said, we see now that you really care about and love these people. We'll never ask for the land back. You can have it. when we empower indigenous Christ followers to do the things that we've been taught to do, all we're simply doing is being obedient to what the Bible has called us to do. We're equipping them with a door opener or a multiplier for the Gospel. Giving them a tool so that they can go into their own world and reach their own people with the love of Jesus Christ. But you know what? People, so many times they don't care about what you know until they know that you care. People don't care about what you know until they know that you care. Three months before we went to India, one of the young pastors, after being threatened but continuing to preach, he was killed. They poured battery acid down his throat and burned his body and put it up on display in the community. But we went there to the same community with, with a tool. And we were welcomed with open arms because we came with something that gives life. When people have a pain, when they have a hurt, religion gets thrown out the window. King Sprite will tell you about imams. That he would have no way to be in touch with them, no close contact because they're always surrounded. But yet, with a hurting tooth, they come and they get into his dental chair. And they pray over him in the name of Jesus Christ. And they take out his tooth. And you know what? Religion has gone out the window. We need to empower people. But we need to do it in such a way that it does not create dependency. If all we go and we do for people or we give them things and they and don't teach them how or let them know that they need to make this a self-sustaining ministry, then we've done a disservice because all we've done is now we're the puppet master here in the United States. Because whoever holds and controls the money controls the ministry. Yes? Try it. Try to do ministry that, that requires money, which most do. Without the agreement of he who or she who holds the purse strings. It won't be very effective. It won't go very far. In Bolivia, we didn't go over because we come underneath the church, not over the church. I just challenged Jose Luis and Mercedes and Raul. And I said, you need to do something to make this self-sustaining. What is your plan? And they talked and what they decided to do is that everybody who came, they would charge... Two bolivianos, very small, thirty cents. Because these are very, very up in the altiplano, potato farmers. We're at about fourteen to fifteen thousand feet. Very, very poor people, but everybody had two bolivianos, and you know what? They came and they got, they got their eyes checked. Only about one in every five to ten people actually need a pair of glasses, but everybody wants to be touched. My dad was in South Korea, not. Too many years ago. And he was, he took the IC just to show them what it was all about. And before the session started, there were some guys gathered, and he, went, he was talking in a circle, and he just started touching the guy next to him, touching his head and having his hand on his ears. And you could see now, South Korea is very, you know, you don't smile in church, it's, it's very serious. And you can just tell that this man was uncomfortable. This was not a good situation. And my dad was just, you know, just nonchalantly just touching him all over. Then my dad called him up later as he was showing and demonstrating the IC kit. And he was just all over the sky, standing close and touching his shoulder and his head and his ears and his eyes and just all over him. And you know what nobody in the audience nobody in the audience said anything And my dad went over and he said He said when I first came in he said I was touching this man and everybody was uncomfortable including him He said but now I've I've been all over this man I have touched him in places that I have no need to touch him in order to do He said, what is the difference? Nobody was uncomfortable. And he held up a pair of glasses and he said, you know what? The difference is I had something in my hand. That's it. Everybody, everywhere we go, everybody wants to be touched. What happened in Bolivia? What happened in Bolivia is everybody who came in to be checked with our IMED program, I wanted to tell you, for years now we've been talking about IMED. But I said, yep, it's coming, it's coming, we're going to have it, and people keep coming by the booth. Do you have IMED? Do you have IMED? I want to tell you, we have IMED. It is here, Trina is in our booth right now, Dr. Trina Wisecup, who joined our team last year actually at GMHC. And IMED, the first four modules are complete and ready. So that's, that's exciting news that my dad certainly wanted me to share with you. But when we give the indigenous God followers a tool, it bridges the gap. And in Bolivia, they did the accounting. They had paid for all the transportation that week. The buses, to moved all of us around. You know, when you have about close to 20 gringos and 60 students going out to do clinics. it's. And yes, we did pile in a bus that was about maybe 25 seats or so. It was uh, very cozy. But we went out. And, and they actually determined that they had actually made money. They came back with more after and actually sent me back to the United States with a replacement order for glasses. It does work. You know, I could tell you many stories for the rest of the evening and I'm, I'm not going to. Um, stop by the booth if you haven't had enough and, and, and I'll tell you more. But tonight, we've talked about really three things. Think family. Be sensitive to culture and empower and equip rather than going and doing without creating dependency. Those things, if you you haven't heard, those are things that we talk about in the missions dilemma. The missions dilemma is the center of what we are. It is the heartbeat of who we are. Actually, uh, we have four churches that have helped us work towards a, a new one because many churches came and said, okay, the missions dilemma asks a lot of difficult questions. You need to kind of brace yourself when you get to the missions dilemma, because it's gonna it's gonna make you uncomfortable. But they said, okay, we get the dilemma. Help us solve it. Help us solve it. And it wasn't our place to come over the church, and so we talked to four churches around the country, and hopefully by next year at this time we will have the resolution to the missions dilemma four churches of different sizes, of different denominations, including Southeast Christian, that will challenge churches to ask the difficult questions and to resolve the dilemma that we face in missions today. Are we going to keep on doing missions the old way, the traditional way, going and doing for people? Or will we be willing to step out on the limb and train them to do things so that they can reach their own people? What is the long-term impact of the short-term trip? Our call is to go. We must go, but we can't leave out teaching the indigenous God followers how to do the things that we've been taught to do. When you came in, you may have noticed a, uh, a red vehicle out here. When the Wow asked us to make them a, um, you know, a, help them know how to fly, we did it with a powered parachute. But we, about eight years ago, my dad woke up in the middle of the night and had a uh, had an idea. And it was for a multimedia vehicle that we call the Maverick. It was actually the MAV, the MAV, the Missionary Assault Vehicle. And then we figured that would be a little bit difficult to get through customs and things if, if we had that so the Maverick stuck and, and that's what we call it. The Maverick is a car. Its primary purpose is a car. It is for a non-professional pilot. An indigenous God who has a geographic area to cover that may not be very big but may have its challenges as far as logistically getting from one place to another or where the roads I was talking to King's Pride this morning in fact took him for a ride in the Maverick on the ground not in the air and he said this is what we need in Ghana because 6 months out of the year there's a whole group of people that we cannot reach because the roads don't go through that's what this does it's a car when you can drive But if you can't drive, or if you need to get to a place beyond roads, you fly. It's cool. I I would encourage you to stop by and see it. It will be on display um, for the rest of the evening tonight. Then we are going to trailer it because um, we would guess that somebody might want to take it with them and uh, try it out for themselves, even though I have the keys. Um, But we're going to have it on display as well tomorrow, as well as the next day. We have some, some video in our booth which is on the top floor in the back corner that you can come by and, and you can see the Maverick in action. I encourage you to do that. You know, as, as we close, um, and I'll come back, but I want to show you a, a brief video. This video is a, a video of my dad. And um, If you've seen the next chapter videos, you've seen a lot of this. But this is just a six-minute video of my dad and I... This accident put my dad in a position he's never been in before. A position where he was totally dependent. He was paralyzed from the neck down. I arrived on the scene about five minutes um, or less after he'd had the accident. He was not testing, he was just testing a a new concept. It was not, a lot of people think it was in the Maverick. It was not. Um, Long story, I won't get into it. And, um, I mean, he was, You'll see it. But listen to the words that my dad has to say. Because hopefully we can learn the lesson that my dad has now seen firsthand about dependency, the one that he's been talking about for the last decade or more. Hopefully we'll be able to get the concept of dependency and not to to take dependency to the next... wherever we go in, in missions... Hopefully we get that, otherwise God may have a lesson in store for you and me tonight, and He may have to teach us by this. This is, uh, this is my dad.
1: My accident was a week ago at iTech we like to experiment with different things, that's why we've been able to invent the things we have this experiment actually worked better than I expected you know it was just a safety strap that broke and the next thing I knew people were talking around me and I saw puffy clouds in this little window and then I saw helicopter blades going through the window and I realized I was in a medevac hel- helicopter on my way to Shans Hospital in Gainesville near where our iTech R&D Center is in Donellan. In this last six days I have been through more pain than I ever imagined possible. But you know what the amazing an encouraging thing to me is that honestly not one time have I wondered or wanted to ask God why this happened you know when we were interviewing Aunt Barbara Udarian for Beyond the Gates of Splendor one of the guys that I took down to the jungle said Barbara here you were out in the jungle's a young mother, a young wife had your whole life ahead of you and then one day you find out that when your husband flew off with Nate Saint to make contact with another people group that they had killed him your whole life had changed and then what he said is I just gotta know Barbara when you ask God why what did he say? you know what her answer was? Her answer was, well, you know, I guess it just never occurred to me to ask him why. And I just thought, how in the world do you get to that kind of point in life where you don't even ask God why when your whole life turns upside down? And now look, it's happened to me. There is a poem that has deeply, deeply touched me. I don't know if I can quote it uh, right now, but I'd like to try. It talks about how, how differently we can see things that God sends our way. And mendicant, by the way, I know from Spanish means beggar. I stood a mendicant of God before his royal throne and begged him for a priceless gift that I could call my own. He gave he gave the gift, but as I would depart, I cried, But Lord, this is a thorn, and it has, hurt, it has pierced my heart. This is a strange and hurtful gift that thou hast given me. And he looked at me and said, O oh, my child, I give good gifts and gave my best to thee. So I took it home, and though at first the cruel thorn hurt sore, as long years passed, I learned at last to love it more and more. I found he never gives a thorn. Without this added grace, he takes the thorn to pull away the veil, which hides his face. And I believe that what's happening right here is letting me into into a much more intimate room that I've never had with God that I haven't sought because I didn't know it existed. And I don't know how this would benefit anybody else except that I am willing to share whatever I've learned. And the harsh, cruel, painful road that I've come to this point through is one that... um, has been an ordeal that I hope never, never, ever to have to repeat, but I know that there are lessons in there, and I pray that God will use them, as the thorn in the poem, to pull aside the veil which hides his face. I think that's
0: If we could just get so committed to not not continuing making others dependent upon us. You know what? I think my dad would probably jump out of wherever he is, he is right now. That's what he's been trying to say. And he he uses a thing and and I missed it earlier, but you probably saw a slide with all my girls. I have six daughters and and my wife and I, and then, and then our family tree, with and, Pora and my brothers and their wives and my parents and all of our kids. You would be, you'd be very silly right now if my dad was tying my shoes, let alone if he was having to tie my own kids' shoes. My dad taught me how to tie my shoes, and I taught my kids how to tie their shoes. That is all we're trying to say. When we go and do missions, ask yourself, what is the long-term impact of the short-term trip? Are we thinking family? Are we doing something for them that they can and should be doing for themselves? Or are we, are we empowering them to do things so that they can have a tool to reach their own people with the love of, and the message of Christ. On Saturday morning, I'm going to have. They put me at the first session and the last session. I don't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, tonight we talk about facing the the dilemma and missions. Are we going to keep on doing what we've been doing, are we willing to change the paradigm and go and equip indigenous God followers? On Saturday morning, uh, one of one of my passions is. It's called The Other 50 Weeks. You know, we here in North America, we spend so much time, energy, money, focusing on one to two weeks a year and spend so little time talking about the other 50 weeks. But we've all been called, if you are a Christ follower in this room, we've all been called to be a missionary. Not one to two weeks a year, but 52 weeks out of Every year. And I would challenge you to come. if, Man, come on on Saturday morning, 9.20. And we're going to talk about the other 50 weeks. How do we become intentional? How do we live our lives every single day intentionally while keeping our focus on eternity? Thanks so much for being here. If you have that survey, bring it by the booth. Um, Get your free gift there. We'd love to... See how we can better partner with you as we try to take this message that God has given us and God has given you around the world. Thanks for being here.